What came first, the chicken or the egg? A centuries-long dilemma, a question that has puzzled us and been the topic of many jokes. But people do work on answers for this dilemma. NPR's Robert Krolwich found a video that explained the chicken or the egg dilemma. Basically, in this video, there was a story told that many, 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 many years ago, there was a chicken-like bird. It was genetically close to a chicken, but it wasn't a full-blown chicken yet. We called it a proto-chicken. So proto-chicken laid an egg, and proto-rooster fertilized it. But when the genes from the mother and father proto-chicken fused together, it combined in a new way and created a mutation that accidentally made the baby different from its parents. Now, it would take many, 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 many millennial centuries for this difference to be noticed. That the egg was different enough to become the official beginning of a new species now known as the chicken. So, basically, if you take two birds that really weren't chickens, and they created a chicken egg. And hence we have the answer. The egg came first, and then it hatched a chicken. I'm not sure if you believe that or not, or if that creates a moral dilemma for you, or a moral quandary, but it begins to start to get at how we behave and what influences our behaviors as human beings. The Greek philosopher Plutarch was a biographer, and he studied the behaviors of individuals. And Plutarch's work was very influential in the evolution of the personal essay, the biography, and also historical writing. Plutarch had 227 works, and one of his that was the most important was called Parallel Lives. And in this book, what he did is he studied the deeds, the lives, of different individuals in Greece and Rome. And they were soldiers, legislators, public speakers, and statesmen. And then he wrote a series called Moralia or Ethica. And that was a series of 60 essays. And in those 60 essays, he talked about the ethical, religious, physical, political, and literary behaviors and topics that came about as a result of how these individuals behaved and carried themselves in society. But we always want to know why and how things happen. So, year 400 BCE, Hippocrates described human behaviors as being biological. And what he concluded is that his idea was that our behavior is the result of four different body fluids. And he called those body fluids humors. And those specific body fluids that he referred to were yellow bile, blood, black bile, and phlegm. But then many centuries later, philosophers, Rousseau and Locke, said that, you know what, we are born as blank slates. The term is called tabula rasa. 
and our differences in each other, they develop solely due to the results of environmental influences. In the 20th century, John Watson had a similar perspective. Watson believed that events in our early childhood have an influence on what kind of adults we become compared to the effects of our genes. But there was a psychologist in 1869 who advocated for nature. Now, Sir Francis Galton in 1869 talked about this idea of eugenics. And his idea was that you could improve a society, the physical and mental makeup of humans, by selective parenthood. That if you pick the right parents, and you had those parents have children together, then you would actually have a super society. He documented this in his book, Hereditary Genius, and talked about selective mating. This idea went badly and poorly because this idea led to Nazi Germany heavily participating in eugenics. But even today, people still argue about, is it nature? Is it nurture? Which one is it? We have that question. Now, in human beings, each of our cells contain 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. Now, 22 of those pairs are called autosomes, and they look the same in both males and females, but the 23rd pair, the sex chromosome, that provides the difference between males and females. So, we all come in this world with 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. What happens next? The title of today's show is Love Child. Welcome to the Stephen Thompson Experience. I am Stephen Thompson. I'm a storyteller, a historian, an educator, a husband and a father, and a compassionate servant leader. I'm also curious. But today I want to have a conversation with you about the best that is in you. My essential question for today is how can you see and hear the people around you and help them find their best self by accepting what they bring to the table and not forcing us into an either-or choice. And my assertion today is it is a sign of poor leadership. If you choose your systems over talent, Make sure you fit your talent and your system fits your talent. But don't make your talent fit your system and don't put people into either or choices in regards to their talent. Love Child, looking at the music of the Supremes this go around in the Stephen Thompson experience, was released as a single on September 30th, 1968. The previous night, the Supremes sung Love Child on the Ed Sullivan Show. One thing about Love Child, it became the third biggest selling Supremes singles of all time behind Baby Love and Someday We'll Be All Together. Now, one of the things about Love Child is when they were composing it, they didn't want to craft another love song. But they wanted to tell a story. 
And the story is about a woman who is asking her boyfriend not to pressure her into sleeping with her for fear that they would conceive a love child. The woman, Diana Ross, was singing on the record was herself a love child. And she didn't have a father at home, so she had to endure a lot of bullying growing up. And growing up in what she talked about, an old, cold, run-down tenement slum. And the background vocals of the song, you hear this. They're saying, asking the boyfriend to please wait, wait. Won't you wait? Won't you hold on a little bit longer? It's in the background. And what was interesting, when you see this video on the Ed Sullivan Show, if you were to go on to YouTube and look at it, you will see that they had a background of a tenement slum in New York, and all of the Supremes did not wear shoes in that video. They were barefoot. Some of the lyrics. I started my life in an old, cold, run-down tenement slum. My father left. He never even married Mom. I started the shared the guilt my mama knew, so afraid that others knew I had no name. This love we're contemplating is a, worth the pain of waiting. We'll only end up hating the child we may be creating. Love child, never meant to be. Ida B. Wells was born a slave in 1862, and she was the oldest daughter of James and Lizzie Wells. The Wells family, as well as the rest of those slaves in the Confederate, were freed by the United States Union thanks to the Emancipation Proclamation, but after six months after Ida's birth. She lived in Mississippi, and as an African-American, she faced racial prejudices, and they were restricted from movement and discriminatory rules and practices. But Ida's father was active in the Republican Party, and he was involved in the Freedman's Aid Society and helped start Shaw University, a school for newly freed slaves. Her father also served on the first board of trustees. Now, it was at Shaw University that Ida B. Wells received her early schooling. But at 16, she had to drop out of school because both of her parents and one of her brothers and sisters, siblings, died in an outbreak of yellow fever. Now she had to care for the rest of her siblings. So at 16, she's having to care for her brothers and sisters. Now, she was able to convince a nearby school administrator that she was actually 18, and she got a job as a teacher. Now, as she was working as a teacher, there was an incident in 1892 that turned Ida B. Wells into an activist. There were three men. The three men were Tom Moss, Calvin McDonald, and Will Stewart. They were three men, and they set up a grocery store, a business. They were African-American. Their new business drew customers away from the white-owned store in the neighborhood. And the white-owned store and their supporters would clash with these three men on a few occasions. So now here is a situation where three men start a business. We are in a free market. We're in a free market and there's competition. And we all talk about how capitalism should have competition. But here we have three men who are competing against other people. And what was the response? Well, the store owners clashed with these men. 
And one night, it had gotten so bad that Moss and the other men had to guard their store against attack. And there were some vandals that came along, and those vandals, they ended up having to shoot at some of them. Today, we call that stand your ground or self-defense. And there's been cases where people have been vindicated for shooting at people. But these three African-American men, they didn't receive that vindication that some people have received today. They were brought to jail. They didn't have a chance to defend themselves against the charges. A mob came along, took them from their cells, and murdered them. And they did it by lynching. So these three business owners started a business simply to compete in society to fulfill the American dream that they had been promised by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and in the pursuit of that they were lynched murdered so Ida B. Wells started an anti-lynching campaign and what she did is she wrote papers in the articles and articles in the newspaper using her educational ability to talk about how wrong this was well, one of her editorials, they came to the newspaper and destroyed all of her equipment. And she was in New York at the time. And if she would have been at her office, they would have killed her. In fact, they told her if she ever came back to Memphis, she would be killed. A woman speaking out against injustice was threatened to be killed. Now, in the 1800s, 1892, mobs across the South had murdered over 200 African-Americans, men and women, by lynch, in lynching. So Ida B. Ells began to investigate all of these lynchings. And what she found out is that there were a lot of women who had been, women had been raped. And killed. She went around the world. She went to Britain where she talked about lynching. She talked about violence against African-American women at the time. She wrote an article that appeared in the New York Times, August of 1886, that a mob had taken a woman named Eliza Woods from a colored jail in Jackson, Tennessee. She was under suspicion for supposedly poisoning her employer. She should have a right to a free trial. Uh, uh, she should have the right to a trial. But instead, Eliza Woods was taken from her, taken from the jail, and killed, lynched, stripped naked, and hung up in a courthouse. And her body was shot with bullets. Ida B. Wells discovered that over 130 women had been murdered by lynch mobs from 1800, 1880 to 1830. But Ida B. Wells continued to investigate and continued to speak out against injustice. And today we have a national memorial for peace and justice that opened in Montgomery, Alabama. Standing up for others. Choosing compassion is a heroic response. Even sometimes when it costs us persecution. Francisco Erasmus Rodriguez Lima, who was 61 years old, he lived in Brazil. 
and he was homeless. One day, he was out on the street, and he saw a gunman, a gunman, take a woman hostage on the steps of the San Paulo Cathedral in Brazil. It was a robbery, a robbery, horribly gone wrong. Francisco attacked the gunman, tackled the gunman. He was shot twice in the process, but the hostage got away. Even though Francisco was hurt, he continued to run after the gunman. The police eventually caught the perpetrator, but Francisco lost his life. Where does compassion come from? Well, compassion is defined by the Association of Psychological Science as the emotional response when perceiving suffering and it involves an authentic desire to help. So compassion is a form of unity. So there's a reason that they're finding that there are some people who are born to stand up for others, even when others don't. Research is showing that people are more caring and trustworthy. They often share a common gene variation that is linked to the receptor for oxytocin. And oxytocin is referred to as the love hormone. And oxytocin plays a vital role in the formation of social bonds and friendships, and it impacts a person's capacity for empathy. And the evidence is showing that the two Gs, variants of these genes, are better with people and generally more caring compared to those who have at least one A variant. Now, there's some separate research that shows that individuals with GG genotypes are also more altruistic and more likely to give to charity. This is apparently connected to how people perceive threats and respond to fear. Now, researchers at the University of Buffalo found individuals who saw the world as a frightening place were likely to less lend a hand during those times, which was linked with the AA and AG genotypes. Now, what is that basically saying is that when people don't help others, it's not necessarily a product of rational thought, but it's a product of fear. Let's go back to Plutarch. And let's go back to our psychologist who came up with eugenics, Sir Francis Galton. What we see in these situations is that Plutarch examined the lives of those who were well-off and those who were wealthy. Sir Francis Galton was himself a wealthy individual. And he believed in this idea of if we put the best people together, they will have the best children. But something was missing there. Compassion gene. Galton didn't take in a compassion gene. And Plutarch was looking at people's vices. So what do we have here? We have a slave a woman who was born of slave parents. And we have people who were born into slavery opening up schools to help other slaves. We have a woman who took her own life into her own hands by speaking out against injustice. Now, 
And we have a homeless man deciding that he was going to help another person and lost his life. So we can all actively cultivate compassion within ourselves. And if we do that, the benefit of that will be incredible. The Dalai Lama said, only the development of compassion and understanding for others can bring us the tranquility and the happiness we all seek. Bernadette Jiwa, the author of a book called Story, said this, you don't need to compete when you know who you are. So we need to say yes. We need to say yes to nature because we need it. And we need to say yes to nurture because we need that too. Imagine if you took away the 46 chromosomes, you wouldn't exist. So we need nature. But we also, if we take away nurture, we descend into barbarism and horrific treatment of people. So you need, you cannot have just one or the other. You don't need to make that choice. Imagine this. You have your right hand and you have your left hand. You never make your right hand and your left hand fight against each other. Oh, right hand, I don't, I, I don't need you today. You've been poor. Now, we have a dominant hand. Yes, I'm left-handed, but I need my right hand. If my right hand went away, life would be incredibly different. We need to be unified in our fight against injustice, and we need to be using the tools we have to lift up others in our organizations and in our society. Think about the chorus of Love Child. Love Child misunderstood. I'll always love you. Love child, never quite as good. I'll always love you. Love child misunderstood. I'll always love you. You see, we have the knowledge and the ability to move past misunderstandings in regards to the people around us. And that happens by listening, stopping and being quiet, affirming others and laying your opinions down. Laying our opinions down. And in choosing empathy. Then you can pick back up your opinions and move forward with them. Someone else's opinion does not take away yours. But if we listen to others, we will be able to move forward from a place of compassion. And this is what I want you to do to end our show today. I want you to ask yourself this question and do this exercise. Who was the last person who disagreed with you? Think about that first. Then imagine if they were right. And then view the world through those lenses. You see, you cannot hug an opinion. There's a lot of opinions out there today. Let's take this. Gun control is an opinion. Immigration is an opinion. You cannot hug an opinion. You can hug a person. You can look into a person's eyes and you can see their grief. You can see their anger. And that is what we need to look at. Maybe sometimes we need to put down the journals, the newspaper articles that we rush to to defend what we believe. But instead, what we need to do is to look into the eyes of that person who is across from us. That person who has 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 in total, 
and one that makes them either a male or a female. We need to look at that person and we need to see them. And even if their opinion is different from yours, we all share the planet together. This has been Stephen Thompson, and this has been my experience. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you for listening. And even though I'm not with you, I believe in you. I believe that you are talented, creative, and that you have a spirit within you that is calling you towards a great adventure. It is an adventure that is unique to you. And your contribution is what the world needs. So go in the direction of that voice. And even if there are those who don't agree or support, know that if you are picking compassion, empathy, and not being cruel to others, know that you have a support in me. Go out and create the change you desire and the impact you wish to create and find the people you wish to serve. Thank you.